This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're starting the story of Jason and the Argonauts from Greek mythology. It's an Avengers-style team-up with heroes like Hercules and Theseus coming along for the ride. You'll see that aimlessly following livestock into the wilderness is an excellent way to make major life decisions, and that if you're looking to go on an epic quest, you should go around offering elderly women piggyback rides. The creature this week is the Pukwiji from Native American folklore. They're little tricksters that can take the form of magic glowing arrows or a giant porcupine with a terrible sense of humor. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 46A, Some Assembly Required. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. We're back in Greek mythology with this epic story. Though you don't need to have heard the previous Greek mythology episodes, so no worries if this is your first time hearing the show. I'll give introductions for all the characters previously covered on the podcast and link all the other episodes where they've popped up in the discussion post on the site. Some say that the quest for the Golden Fleece is the first quest ever, and it's definitely the first meetup of some of the most prominent ancient Greek heroes that we've met so far. In terms of history, we are at about 1300 BC, about a generation before the Trojan War. I'll get on with the story, but we will not talk about Jason right away. We'll meet a giant bronze robot, an unfortunate captive, and a dragon, all before Jason's quest even starts. The sweet fragrance of the flowers wafted up from the basket. Europa rocked it back and forth, filling the spring air with the smells. It was a beautiful day in her father's kingdom. She had been going out to the fields more and more. As spring turned to summer and the days grew longer, she came out with a group of helpers, and they would gather flowers, sit and visit and bathe in the river. Later in the day, the shepherds would drive the herds out into the fields to graze. Then, one day, Europa saw a beautiful white bull. It was larger than all the others, and while the shepherds were away, the bull approached her and knelt down. It wanted her to get on its back. Despite jumping on a wild bull's back being extremely dangerous, even under the best circumstances, Europa could clearly see that this bull was obviously a gentleman bull. If he was going to bow down and let her ride, Europa set the flowers down, grabbed a hold of this beautiful bull's horns, and climbed onto its back, as we all no doubt would do in this situation. That would be the last time she would ever touch the ground of her homeland. Once she was safely on the back, the bull ran as fast as it could for the coast. Europa's helpers screamed. The king's shepherds chased after it. Europa saw that it was moving too fast for her to jump. It leapt into the water, and soon it was too far from shore for Europa to jump off. She couldn't swim. She knew that this bull couldn't have been a bull. This bull was a god. And she was completely at his mercy. This story isn't about Europa, though. Cadmus was her brother, a prince. And with thrown goblets and soon regretted words, he and his brothers were cast out to find their sister. They were ordered to leave and to not come back until they found Europa. Cadmus stroked his beard. He had been out there for weeks, and, and still he knew nothing of his sister. He could guess what happened to her, though. Beautiful bulls don't appear from nowhere and kidnap young women. Well, correction, when beautiful bulls do that, they are not beautiful bulls. They're Zeus. 
he went to the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi to find out that he should stop looking. The Oracle told him that he was correct, that he would never see his sister again. Also, sorry about being exiled forever from your homeland. As a quick aside, that's the end of Europa's story. She was taken to Crete, the large Greek isle just south of the peninsula and the future home of the Minotaur, and scumbag Zeus did what scumbag Zeus does. Sidebar, I don't think Zeus has any mode other than scumbag. He is just the worst. She had several children with Zeus, including our sociopathic old buddy Minos. Europa was made the first queen of Crete and established the kingdom there. Because there's a whole world out there full of people to do horrible things to, Zeus had to go, but he left her some stuff. To protect her from pirates, Zeus gave her a giant bronze robot named Talos, who would patrol the island three times a day and throw boulders at passing ships. The other two things were a dog that always caught what it hunted and a javelin that never missed. Then Zeus left her to run an island kingdom by herself so that he could resume being terrible. Back with Cadmus, her brother, there was a silver lining for him. He would get to make a cow friend and found a city of his very own. Cadmus learned that he would soon see a cow walk past him and he would need to follow it for as long as it walked. When it finally sat down for water, that's where he would found his new city. Leaving the temple, Cadmus saw a red heifer lazily walking by, seemingly oblivious to the world. Cadmus shrugged. If he was supposed to follow a cow, he would follow a cow. He gathered all of his servants and attendants, and they all followed the cow on foot. And it was super slow. The cow was in no particular hurry, and it seems kind of funny if you think about it. Cadmus will be known among the greatest slayers of monsters in the age before Hercules. But here he is with a group of guys just following a cow around the ancient Greek peninsula. Wherever the cow sat down, there Cadmus would found Thebes. I don't know about you, but I think more serious decisions in the modern day need to be made by following wandering livestock. And also, sorry, you probably started this episode thinking that we'd be talking about Jason and all of his awesome adventures right off the bat. But a few minutes in, and we're just getting to a group of guys lazily following a cow. Thrilling stuff. Anyway, they followed the heifer for days and days, and I don't think the cow stopped, making it a very long few days. Eventually, though, it collapsed in exhaustion, and their journey was through. Cadmus kissed the earth of his new home. Cadmus was going to get things set up here, slash maybe pass out after a few days of straight walking. He noticed they were next to an ancient forest, and he asked his men to go find a spring, if there was one. He would like to sacrifice this heifer to Athena, and get off on the right foot with the new city. One man stayed back with Cadmus, while the rest walked into the dark, ancient forest where no person had ever walked before. This was probably a good idea. Hours later, Cadmus was annoyed. They were all ready to kill this cow. What was taking them so long with the water? Cadmus picked up his javelin and entered the forest. It was about 20 minutes in when Cadmus heard the bubbling spring and so much more, like biting and chewing and gulping. He looked through the leaves to see most of his men there in the clearing. The only problem, they were not moving. They were crushed and bloated and dead. There was also a bubbling spring with a massive serpent coiled around it. By the look of his belly, the serpent or dragon was helping himself to warrior three or four. The rest were scattered throughout. The dragon was gold crested with fire eyes and a body that, according to Ovid, swelled with poison. He should really get that checked out. 
Cadmus did what virtually no one would do and stepped out from the leaves. He was going to avenge his men. The fight was a quick one, actually. Cadmus ended up throwing his javelin and it got lodged in the thing's spine. Ancient monsters brimming with poison and taller than forests have many strengths, like the poison and strength. Intelligence is often not one of them. Its spine hurt, so it went after the painful spot with its teeth. Unfortunately, it was not super precise. It was successful in dislodging the iron point from the spine, but it just sent it further into the body, or it continued biting this annoying dragon that was in the way. In minutes, Cadmus was the only one left alive in the clearing. He jumped when Athena appeared behind him, saying, essentially, congratulations on the city, but two men is technically the smallest city possible, and it won't do for building up a kingdom that will be one of the greatest of the ancient Greek world. Cadmus looked at his other men, overladen with dragon poison, and Athena said that there were more. For the next few hours, Cadmus got to play dentist and pulled the teeth from the dragon. Athena told him to dig up a small amount of dirt and sow the dragon's teeth. As soon as they were planted, Athena told him to step back, but he didn't need to be told. The ground began to shake, and within seconds, points came out of the ground. After the points were the helmets, armored chests and arms, whole warriors, nearly a dozen of them. They were amazing warriors, known as the Spartoi. No relation to the Spartans. Spartoi means the sown. Very literal. Brushing dirt off themselves, they were confused. Cadmus was confused, too, but Athena was not. She handed Cadmus a stone and told him that this time he'll want to get very far back. Cadmus did what he was told and tossed it into their midst. The nearest Spartoi reached for it, but his hand hit that of ten other Spartoi. They said, almost simultaneously, for the others to back off. This was their cool rock. They all said, no, you back off. Seeing that diplomacy had failed, they resorted to murdering each other. As an aside, what does this say about humans? These men were literally minutes old, knew nothing of the world outside of this grove where they had just been born from the dirt. They said two sentences to each other before trying to kill each other over a rock. And I'm just kidding. They didn't say anything to each other. According to the ancient sources, they just began fighting. When their own personal gladiatorial match slash hunger games was down to five people, Athena called it and the Spartoi stopped fighting. Athena turned to Cadmus, saying that these Spartoi would be the ones to help him build the city of Thebes. With that, she vanished. The Spartoi left the clearing to go get started building the first towers and walls of Thebes. Cadmus was about to follow, but something caught his eye. There, in the flesh of the dragon, were a few more teeth that he had missed from the mouth. Another dozen or so. He carefully picked them up out of the poisonous flesh, washed them in the water from the spring, and put them in his pouch. Then, he started digging the graves of all the men that he lost to the dragon. It wasn't an easy next few years for Cadmus. He learned that the dragon belonged to Ares, the god of war, and for recompense, he would need to spend what was called an eternal year in service to the god of war. An eternal year was neither eternal nor a year because it was eight years. After eight years, all was forgiven, and Ares gave Cadmus his daughter's hand in marriage. This story isn't about Cadmus, though, either. All this does relate, and it comes back, so you did need to know. A quick note... And I can't find anything else on this other than a few sentences here or there. But as Cadmus and his wife grew old, 
apparently he was still getting grief from Ares for killing the dragon in his youth. Cadmus wished, maybe intentionally, that if the Olympians loved dragons so much, then Cadmus wished that he was a dragon. Immediately, his skin began to harden with scales, and he felt his teeth growing sharp in his mouth. His tongue forked, and his body began to warp. His wife saw this and pleaded with the heavens, not that he would be kept from turning, but that she could be turned into a dragon with him, since she didn't want to leave him. Minutes later, they slithered next to each other, bodies swollen with poison. The pair had founded what would be one of the greatest cities in ancient Greece, and who had been the parents of generations of kings, left Thebes, never to return. They went off together, hand in hand, into the sunset to live happily ever after, as dragons. We will finally get to talking about Jason, a fairly important person in the story of Jason and the Argonauts, right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Harry's Razors. So I did some research on the history of razors. It wasn't until about 500 BC that men started shaving their faces in Greece. The awesome technology they had? Sharp stones to literally scrape the hair from their faces. Not into that? Okay, well, how about plucking the hairs individually? Yeah, we've come a long way. Harry's is pretty cool. Their razors have five German engineer blades. They're about half the price of drugstore blades, and they come to your house. There are different options for how often you get them, and the blades are really nice. The five blades give a close, smooth shave, and it has a little hinge so that you can even get those tricky little neck hairs. These are great quality blades, and they come right to your door. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades that they'll send you their popular free trial set, which comes with a razor, a five-blade cartridge, and shaving gel, all free when you sign up for a shave plan. Just pay for shipping. Plus, there's a special offer for listeners of this show. Enter code MYTHS at checkout and get a post-shave balm added to your order for free. You can go to harrys.com right now and enter code MYTHS at checkout to claim your free trial set and post-shave balm. That's harrys.com, code MYTHS. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Okay, so I thought of another recommendation that would fit really well with this podcast. This book is a popular one. In fact, they're turning the series into movies, a TV show, and a game. It's called The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. It fits well with this podcast because it's the story of someone who became a legend in his own time, telling the tale behind his legend. So it's doing something really cool and kind of subverting our expectations of the story of a legendary hero. But maybe really well-told epic fantasy narrated by a professional isn't your thing. That's cool. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book for another title, anytime, no questions asked. Audible.com has audiobooks from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and more, so you will find something you like. Their app is free and works basically everywhere for you all. Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. You can get all 27 hours of the book I mentioned today for free. Go to audible.com slash myths to start your free trial today. Again, you can show your support for the show and get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash myths. Okay, now back to the story. Aeson held his wife's hand as she pushed and screamed. Aeson was anxious. Not only was he watching his wife go through childbirth in the ancient world, which, yeesh, but there were men coming to kill them. Aeson was the crown prince of the kingdom of Iolcus, and his father had been sick for some time. Minutes ago, 
a servant, one of the few still loyal to Aeson, showed up at the door of the shack in which they were hiding. Not quite the glorious place for the future king or queen to be born, but it hid them from Peleus, Aeson's ruthless half-brother, long enough for the baby to actually be born. As the king grew more and more ill, Aeson learned that Peleus was paying all the right people. Aeson was slowly pushed farther and farther away as his other brothers were exiled or chose to leave the city under mysterious circumstances. Aeson could see what was happening and he feared for his wife and their unborn child. Then they, too, went into hiding. Now they have been found. The servant had come by mere moments ago to tell that the king was dead and Peleus was the new king. They had found Aeson and his wife and now Peleus was coming to make sure his power was secure. The baby was born, it was a boy. Even worse, a boy would be hunted for the rest of his days, if he survived the next few minutes. Aeson hugged his wife and kissed his newborn son. They named him Jason. They enjoyed these few last moments where they could be a family together. Aeson knew what he must do. He looked at his wife. She nodded and kissed her son for the last time. Aeson took his newborn son and handed him to the servant, who awkwardly held the boy. Aeson told him that there was a cave nearby with someone that they could trust. He gave the servant the directions. As the pounding on the door began, it was King Peleus's men. Aeson told the servant that there was a secret exit out of the cellar. The birth had been rough, and Aeson's wife, named Alcimede, couldn't yet walk. Aeson would stay here with her and take whatever fate that the gods had in store for him. The servant heard the first crack of lightning as he got on his horse outside. As he made a makeshift sling for the newborn, he heard the door crack and shatter. He spurred his horse onto a gallop before he heard the spearbutt crack on Aeson's temple and then on the head of Alcimede. The little baby, Jason, screamed for his mother as the rain came down in sheets. The baby bounced roughly on the chest of the servant as they galloped off into the darkness of the storm. The servant could see that this was the cave Aeson had told him of. He followed the panicked directions to the letter, but now that the servant was here, he could see that this wasn't any dank, dark cave, but a well-lit, warm home. Also, there was a centaur. The servant recoiled when the seven-foot-tall monster answered the door. Given that he had a newborn in his arms, he was at a slight disadvantage when he went for his spear, but the centaur reached out and caught his arm. We've been expecting you, the centaur, named Chiron, said. We talked about him a little bit in the Hercules episode, but it's time for us to give Chiron a proper introduction. I picture Chiron to be like Beast from X-Men, mildly terrifying to look at, but surprisingly cultured and well-spoken. He is a half-horse, half-human creature that, with his wisdom, civilization, and restraint, was unlike most of the other centaurs. That's probably because he wasn't technically a centaur. Not like the rest, anyway. Chiron was a half-brother of Zeus, conceived by Cronus, before the Titanomachy that we talked about back in the Prometheus episode. The Titanomachy was when the Olympians, so Zeus, Hera, Hades, Athena, and all them, fought the members of their parents' generation, the Titans. Spoiler alert, the Olympians won. In a very Zeus move, Cronus was stepping out on his wife and sister, Rhea. She found out and went to confront him. Midway through, he wanted to pretend like he wasn't there, so he transformed into a horse because there's nothing suspicious about that. Months later, the nymph he was with gave birth to the half-horse, 
half-man named Chiron. He was distinguished not only because he wore clothes, but in some representations, his two front legs are human and not horse, as if a half-horse man wasn't weird enough. Chiron was a teacher, a healer, and an oracle, and, most famously, ran a daycare for epic Greek heroes, Achilles, Ajax, Jason, Perseus, Theseus, and in some versions, Hercules, are reported to have lived with and trained under Chiron for a time. It seems like a great place to leave your kids if you want them to learn how to fight monsters and get in complex blood feuds that will lead to an early demise. Chiron and his wife, who was a nymph, gently took the baby, and little Jason stopped crying. Before the servant left, Chiron thanked him and told the servant that the centaur and his wife would raise the baby. And one day, Jason would return to take back the kingdom that was rightfully his. Twenty years later, Jason was making the long journey to the city of Iolcus, the city that his grandfather had founded, and where Jason had been forced to flee as a baby. For 20 years, he had been cared for by his centaur dad, Chiron. He was trained to fight and survive in a hard world, to think and to lead. Yet, he was never allowed too far from the cave. Just that morning, though, Chiron woke him early, saying that he would now have to leave for Iolcus. Chiron was not a sentimental centaur. He had lived for many lifetimes, and he had seen the passing of way too many humans to get too attached to the creatures who had such little time in this world. Less than an hour later, Jason was on the road, alone. He approached a river and saw an old woman wringing her hands in anxiety at the edge of it. Jason approached her and her hands went to her bag, but he told her he wasn't a robber and he asked her how he could help. It was tough balancing the old woman on his shoulders and though Jason was strong, she was surprisingly heavy, like four times heavier than her size. And with each step, he worried that he would sink so low that he wouldn't be able to get out of the mud at the bottom of the shallow river. Then his foot finally got stuck. It just wouldn't come up. He pulled and pulled, and that's when the old woman jumped down from his back. Jason saw that she was walking much straighter now, and she didn't look quite so old. I think I can manage now, she said, smirking, and disappeared before his eyes. Jason was confused, but he was more focused on getting his foot out of the cold mud. In the end, he tore the leather and lost a sandal in the mud. He didn't have time to try to find another when he finally made it to the other side of the river, and Chiron was insistent that Jason get to Iolcus before sundown. So he had to press on sand sandal. Peleus, the man who had usurped his father, was performing a sacrifice to his dad, Poseidon, when he saw something in the twilight. It was the form of a young man walking up to greet him. He was a bit dirty from a long day of traveling and appeared to be a strong young man, the type of warrior that Peleus could use. Peleus invited him to a sacrifice in the feast, not knowing who he was. Later on that night, Peleus took a seat next to the stranger and asked him all about himself. Jason narrowed his eyes. He said, my name is Jason. You killed my father. Prepare to... No, 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 no. Wait, what? Peleus said. Wait, you're Jason? Aeson's kid? We were wondering what happened to you. No, buddy, your dad's not dead. I just had him thrown in the dungeon for 10-ish years. He's out now, though. Super old, too. He's under constant house arrest and surveillance, but we're not too worried about him. Wait, where's your sandal? Jason explained all about the mud and the weird old lady piggyback ride. 
Kelius' face became ashen. Like many rulers, he was incredibly paranoid about losing his power, and it also didn't help that he had many enemies in the form of gods and men, and that he himself had usurped his own throne. Anyway, he had gone to an oracle who told him to beware of a man wearing only one sandal, and now Aeson's son was here, wearing one sandal. And as a quick aside, the woman at the river, absolutely Hera. As it turns out, Peleus had angered even Hera by killing his stepmother at her altar. I was gonna say don't kill people at altars, but how about we just don't kill people? This incredibly vengeful goddess was very committed to his downfall. The king swore when he saw that Jason was already eating, which meant that, according to the customs of hospitality, Peleus couldn't just have this kid stabbed to death. Jason was a guest in his house. The custom of hospitality was one that Zeus held very highly. Basically, it was not good for guests to hurt hosts, and hosts shouldn't hurt guests. If Peleus killed Jason now, then Zeus would turn on him too. He wouldn't have any friends on Olympus. Then, Peleus had an idea. Jason asked Peleus if he could see his father. Peleus told him, sure, and motioned to one of his soldiers to go get Aeson's head and bring it here. He turned to Jason, was that not what you meant? Oh, you want to see him alive? No, no, absolutely not. Jason looked around the room. He could see he was outnumbered if he tried to force his way through and rescue his father. He tried to bargain with Peleus, who said that there was one thing Jason could do if he ever wanted to see his father again. Far away, in Colchis, there was a grove sacred to Ares, the god of war. In that grove, hanging on a simple oak tree, was a lamb's fleece made out of pure gold. There's also a dragon that never sleeps watching over it. And no, this isn't the same dragon or even related to the earlier story. If Jason brought the golden fleece all the way from Colchis, then he would be able to see his father again. Better hurry, though. Aeson's getting pretty old, and Colchis is an ocean away. Jason was unfazed. He, he said it wasn't good enough. Jason would leave on this nearly impossible task today if Peleus agreed to something else. Abdication. If Peleus would give up the throne that was rightfully Aeson's, then the young man would start getting ready for the quest right away. There were innumerable dangers in the oceans and hostile kings and monsters once Jason found himself in the faraway land, setting aside even the fickle gods or the dragon. This was a safe bet for Peleus. If he didn't agree, well, what was to stop Jason from doing what he came here to do? What did Jason have left in this world? except his father and mother. Jason's hand rested on a sword. Peleus clenched his jaw. Fine, he said. He knew it was a dangerous journey, and even with everything Jason had mentioned, there was a king in Colchis, who considered the grove and the fleece to be his. Jason would die before even being allowed to approach the fleece. Jason smiled, stood up from the feast, and said he would be back for his father and his throne. Oh, and one more thing, Jason said. Peleus never said that he had to do it alone. He flung the doors open wide and walked out into the night. He had work to do. He was going to put together a team. Hercules was straining under the weight of the Aramanthian boar. It wouldn't be that bad normally. I mean, he was Hercules, and he had been given super strength by the breast milk of the gods. But after 50 miles, a gigantic boar on one's back will be pretty tiring for anyone. He was now almost to the city of Mycenae to present the boar to Eurystheus and complete his fourth labor. 
He smiled when he saw a familiar face. It was Aeolus, his young nephew. The two had almost just died when killing the Lernian Hydra, Hail Hydra. But after killing many centaurs on purpose and one by accident, Hercules was happy to see his young friend. Have you heard? Aeolus asked him. As Hercules strained under the weight of the gargantuan boar, Aeolus told him the news. There was some kid named Jason who was putting together a crew to go after the Golden Fleece. Well, hold, hold on, wait a minute, Hercules said. I just need to drop something off. He kicked open the door to Eurystheus' throne room, grabbed the boar by the leg, and flung him into the room. Hercules shut the door to the sound of all of Eurystheus' guards panicking and the giant boar turning the room into a complete mess. Hercules turned to Aeolus. I'm sorry, you were saying? Real quickly, you've probably heard the name Hercules, and I know, it's actually Heracles in the Greek. He's a demigod, meaning that he's the son of Zeus, because he was the son of Zeus, but not the son of Hera, Hera hated him. It didn't help that she was tricked into breastfeeding him, giving him super strength. It also didn't help that Hercules had the reputation for being awesome at everything. One day, Hera was so fed up with hearing about how great he was that she drove him mad and had him murder his wife, Megara, and their children. He had to be purified for this crime, so he had to do 12 labors for his cowardly cousin, Eurystheus, the king of Mycenae. He killed the Nemean lion and got an invincible cloak out of the deal one that he wore everywhere, and he killed the Lernian Hydra, giving him arrows coated with super poison, or meeting up with him just as he's finishing his fourth labor. And all of this takes place between the fourth and the fifth. All the labors are covered in comparatively amateurish detail in episodes 10a and 10b. Over the next few weeks and months, word spread all over Greece that Jason was going on a quest for the Golden Fleece. A messenger came to the son of Hermes, named Autolycus, and told him about this trip that was leaving as soon as possible, Autolycus dropped the calf that was absolutely his and took off on the road for Iolcus. Laertes kissed his wife goodbye and looked on his young son, a toddler named Odysseus. He might not have wanted to leave, but quests like this come up once in a generation. He left his kingdom, Ithaca, in the hands of a steward and set sail for the mainland. Theseus sat down and relaxed. He had killed many a monster in his short life so far including the dreaded Minotaur on Crete. He had returned the Athenian captives, rescued his city of Athens, and, as a cherry on top, oversaw the creation of the world's first functional democracy, turning Athens from a kingdom that was one bad ruler away from imploding to a stable union of the city and the surrounding peoples. And Theseus was the ruler of Athens. All of this happened before the age of 30. Now, as less of a king and more of a head of government, Theseus was bored. He missed fighting for his life in the dark, taking ships in the night, flights from danger into danger. He missed the glory. A messenger burst through the door. It was a quest. J but Theseus stopped him at the word quest. He did not care what it was. He grabbed his cloak, his bronze club, and some arrows and said that he would do it. He, too, rode south for Iolcus. Peleus was loath to leave his pregnant wife. He had married the water nymph, Thetis, in a ceremony attended by the Olympians. It was their seventh child, their seventh try. Peleus had delayed long enough and said that he had to go. He was wary of getting too attached to the baby that hadn't yet been born after the other six. But he kissed his wife goodbye and then kissed her stomach and said goodbye to the baby who, if it survived and was a boy, would be named Achilles.
Jason, just 20 years old, was surprised by the response. Standing before the heroes, he took a deep breath and asked who they wanted to lead them. Theseus was the first to stand. He looked on Jason with pride and said, Hercules, Hercules should lead us. Jason sheepishly took a seat, having really misread the situation. Of course Hercules should lead them. Who is Jason? Literally everyone agreed with Theseus when he named his childhood hero, but Hercules was, frankly, a little embarrassed. He said that he appreciated everyone acknowledging that he was the greatest warrior of his generation and by far the best and coolest person here, but Hercules would not be their leader. In fact, he would prevent anyone else from standing for the office, either by asking nicely or by actually preventing them from standing. Hercules did have his club after all. No, Hercules insisted that it would be the one who called them here, the young man at the front of the crowd, named Jason. He should lead them. The rest of the heroes, maybe agreeing, maybe not wanting to say hello to the business end of Hercules' club, agreed that they would let this Jason fellow be their captain. Jason looked out in the crowd of warriors that had been assembled, and a lump formed in his throat. He was just some kid, and yet he was supposed to command the sons of gods. These were people that were years older than him, who were already legends in their own time, and they were looking to him to lead them. He swallowed hard. If this was what he had to do to win back his kingdom and his father, then he would do it. Before getting too much farther, we should really talk about what the Golden Fleece is. Years and years ago, in Greece, there was a man named Phrixus who had a twin sister. Their dad, a king, got remarried and the whole evil stepmother thing ensued. Their mother was a cloud nymph and still alive, so she sent a golden lamb to come save them. Naturally, it could fly and it rescued Phrixus and his sister from certain death. It carried them over the sea to Colchis. However, on the way, Phrixus's sister fell and died. In Colchis, Phrixus met up with King Aetes, married his daughter, and they said a heartfelt thank you to the golden lamb by sacrificing it to Zeus. For sheltering him and letting him marry his daughter, Phrixus gave Aetes the golden fleece, and it was guarded by a dragon. However, since then, the Greek side of the family has really wanted the golden fleece back because they see it as theirs. That's why Jason has been given this quest. Also, it's really hard to do, and Peleus just wants to kill him. When camping outside the city over the past few months, while waiting for the warriors to show up, Jason was approached by a shipbuilder. He said he had been working for years on a ship, and now he knew why. His hand had been guided by Athena, and just last night, he had been told in a dream to come speak to the young man sleeping in the wilderness. The tall, strong shipbuilder's name was Argus. The ship that he was building was called Argo, meaning swift, and it would take Jason and his companions across the sea. I don't know what Jason said to the assembled legendary heroes, if anything. If you think about it, this isn't really a Braveheart, they can take our lives, but they can't take our freedom speech, or a day when the courage of men fail speech. No, they were just a very overpowered team going to a foreign land to take something from the people who live there for their own glory. He probably just asked them to save their inevitable blood feuds for when the ship docked. In addition to Aeolus, Autolycus, Theseus, Laertes, Peleus, Augeus, Jason, and Argus the shipbuilder, there were many more heroes on what might be the first sea voyage in non-history. Telamon was there, the future father of Ajax who would get into a fight with Hercules, the first sack of Troy. As I said, Hercules was on this trip as well. He brought a squire with him, a young man by the name of Hylas, because he can't seem to stop putting young friends in mortal danger. Everyone was getting along though, as they settled in for the long voyage. Oh, before we get too far, the ship, Argo, had the ability to prophesy 
because of a special oak plank it had from a forest of a powerful oracle. I didn't know how to bring that into the narrative in a way that made sense. Still don't. So yeah, that's something. I want to see a Disney version of the story where the ship is a wise cracking sidekick, voiced by Josh Gad. Jason looked back, and as he did, he watched his ancestral home, the city of Iolcus, vanish in the fog of the morning. As the greatest heroes the world had ever known rode onward, the world beyond the map was a wonderful and terrifying place. The sea was the home of monsters, sirens, and whirlpools. Wherever they docked, they could run into beasts and monsters and wizards. At the end was the golden fleece, hung on a tree, guarded by a dragon. Gliding through the mist, Jason and his Argonauts passed into the unknown, and not all of them would return. So next week, we're going to jump right into the quest for the Golden Fleece. We'll meet harpies, giants, and everyone will kind of just party too much, leaving Hercules to somehow be the most responsible Argonaut. I want to say thanks to Protsad, Big R Razorback, Jlim Becker, Bamek56, Fisherfile, Miami Me Mod, Ali Pal, Conwood, TFP Fan, Morganology, Steph with a 5 instead of an E, Lawsboz11, Aussie Fam, Brody Israelson, McCor X Podcast, Christine Lapisan, Mihiho, and Admiral Macbar for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. And I love the feedback. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place. And you can find the show there or on the iOS Podcasts app at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site for less than the price of a vial of E. coli that can apparently be bought by anyone online. You can get extra episodes, ad free versions of this show, and source pack ebooks that won't make you violently ill. Seriously, though, don't buy E. coli online. You can probably save some money by just licking some raw chicken. Okay, also, I'm really serious this time. Don't lick raw chicken. For more info on the membership and not E. coli or raw chicken, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Pukwudgie from the folklore of the Wampanoag Nation in Massachusetts and southern New England. The Pukwudgie stand about three feet tall and are known as malicious little tricksters. They weren't always this way, though. A long time ago, they were trying to be helpful, but it never really worked out, so they decided to try their hand at being harmful. The gods at the time were not fans of the Pukwudgie burning down houses and shooting people with magic arrows, so they put the Pukwudgie in a bag, shook it up, and flung them all over the region now known as New England. Some Pukwudgie survived, and they were soon up to their own tricks again, retaliating on the people. The gods, again, were not thrilled about this, and went to work smushing every Pukwudgie they found. From that day forward, the Pukwudgie lived on the fringes of society, and in the forests, nearly invisible. Nearly. They are almost identical to normal people, except for their humorously large noses, hands, and ears. They also have smooth gray skin that sometimes glows. Basically, they look almost nothing like normal people. One of their pranks is to lure people into the forest, to the edge of a cliff, and then push the person off of a cliff. That's not really a prank, though, and more so just murder. One less lethal but infinitely more annoying prank they play is blinding people with sand. I'm just going to come out and say it, I am not a fan of their sense of humor. They don't just remain the subtle little glowing gray guys, but they can take the form of a walking porcupine. 
magic fire arrows that fly on their own, and there's also the possibility that they can control undead zombie warriors. There's nothing you can do to ward them off, but following the first rule of the Myths and Legends podcast, by not following the strange creatures into the dark forest is a good start. If you do find yourself in the dark forests of New England, some traditions say that you can avoid their ire if you show them some respect. I'm not sure what respecting a sentient flaming arrow looks like, but do that. Other traditions say that they can kill with a stare. So really just follow the first rule of the Myths and Legends podcast and don't follow the strange creatures into the dark forest. Real quickly, in doing research for this creature, I found that they're actually the representative creature of one of the houses of the wizarding school in North America in the Harry Potter universe. I know this little tidbit doesn't make up for me missing the Mandragora reference, but hopefully it's a start. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Other music is by Pottington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. Links to still more music are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.